Hello, this is Montes Press Radio. We're broadcasting live from Cell Project Space in London. I'm sitting here at the table with Juliet Jakes. A very warm welcome. And with welcome. Emily Pope. Hi. Hi. And we're going to spend the next hour together. And we'll first listen to a reading from Juliet. And then we'll like having a bit of a conversation. Juliet Jakes is a writer and filmmaker based out of London. And she has published two novels. She's published a wide range of fiction, of essays, of journalism in all the important magazines, basically. And she has made um, some short films, one of which we will talk about. And um, yeah, we'll talk about the, like, the details of all of this later, but we'll first listen to your reading. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to read a short story which was written in 2014 in response to a commission from C.N. Nestor's Transpose Evening of Trans-Related Art. The, uh, the event was for um, trans-identified artists, writers, creatives, responding in some way to works in the collection. And they originally asked me, as somebody who does quite a lot of arts journalism, they originally asked me to just respond in a sort of non-fictional, conventional art criticism kind of way to a work in the collection. But I couldn't find anything in the Tate Modern Collection that was either by a trans-related artist or felt like a particularly sort of positive or even particularly neutral uh, portrait of a, a trans person. Um, there was one work by Diane Arvis that I thought about talking about and decided that actually what it might be quite interesting to do instead would be to take a more creative approach and look at the kind of processes by which trans people um, had historically been excluded from, from culture and the ways in which transphobia, um, but in this case also sort of transphilia, would would contribute to that exclusion. Um, a lot of my cultural work, a lot of my non-fiction and fiction writing has been to do with writing trans people and non-binary people uh, into culture, writing them back into culture, saying we have always existed, uh, and looking at the, the processes by which we've, we've been kept out of, kept out of culture. Um, so this story deals with that. It's uh, 20 minutes long. Um, I should give listeners a content note, like the story does uh, does deal with and depicts some sexual violence. Um, it's set at the end of the uh, the Weimar period, so that obviously carries its own uh, content note, I think, uh, and does obviously uh, deal with transphobia and, and trauma around that as well. So, um, yeah, I will uh, I will begin reading. Um, it's you know, I presented it um, like a curator giving a tour of an artwork in a museum, so I'm going to, um, to read the text exactly as I read it then. So it's called The Woman in the Portrait. Good evening, ladies, gentlemen and everyone else, and welcome to the Tate Modern. The image you see is self-portrait with model by the German artist Christian Schad known as the painter with the scalpel for the cutting, forensic nature of his work, and it's on loan from a private collector. And the son of a wealthy Bavarian lawyer, Shad was born in 1894 
and fled to Switzerland in 1915 to avoid military service. There, he became involved with the Dadaists, attending their legendary cabaret Voltaire in Zurich, before moving to Italy and adopting the Neue Sacklichkeit, or New Objectivity style, that replaced Expressionism as Germany's dominant modernist form in the mid-1920s. Painted in 1927, the self-portrait is Shad's most famous work. It is noted for his hostility and suspicion, and the disconnection between him and his model, but her identity has long been a mystery. It is not his then-wife, Marcella Arcalangi, an Italian medical professor's daughter who he married in 1923. Shad claimed that he saw the model by chance in a stationery shop in Vienna, where he lived from 1925 to 27. But the remarkable find of two diaries from 1926 and 27, written by a transvestite known only as Heiker, a hostess in Berlin's El Dorado nightclub who worked as a maid at Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute of Sexual Science, has radically changed perceptions of Shad's work. The diaries are rediscovered from an attic in Nice, near Hirschfeld's home after his exile from Germany. Along with Shad's letters to Dardaris friends, recently discovered by art scholars, they explain how Heike came to be the woman in the portrait and provide a fascinating insight into gender-variant life in the Weimar Republic. On Friday the 4th of February 1927, Heike went to the El Dorado, a gay club in Berlin which had just moved to Schoenberg, opposite the Vascala Variety Theatre. The following day, she wrote, At the El Dorado last night, with Dora and the girls. Dora refers to Dora Richter, one of the first transsexual women who um, underwent surgery with Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute. I got my hair done like Aston Nielsen in Joyless Street and wore my long black dress with the beads that Marie got for my birthday. Comrade Veit was there, getting drunk with Marlene Dietrich before her act. I went on stage to introduce Marlene. A man at the front kept staring at me. I saw him go to the bar and buy some chips for a dance. As I stepped down, he grabbed my hands, told me that he just moved to Berlin, took me to the bar and bought a bottle of absinthe. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, he told me. Listen, I said, I'm the third sex. That might be Dr. Hirschfeld's line, he yelled, but you transcend sex. He invited me to his studio in Vienna to model for him. I said I wanted to be in the movies, but Comrade told me it could never happen. Ignore that two-bit somnambulist, said Shad. Once they see my portrait, no director could resist you. As far as the pictures are concerned, you are a woman. We danced. He kept staring into my eyes, smiling. I tried to kiss him. I'm married, he said. He gave me a card with his address, told me to write to him and then left. Dora asked what happened. Nothing, I said. After work on Friday the 25th of February, Heiker arranged to meet Shad. She thought they would go to dinner and then the theatre, with her diaries detailing her dreams of leaving her domestic service to become an actress, but Shad's note to Richard Holsenbeck, posted earlier that week, suggests that he never intended to meet her in public. Holsenbeck was the uh, Dadaist poet and co-founder of the Cabaret Voltaire. Velt Dada went to El Dorado to find the model, Heike. She, he, is Uranian, an invert, but thinks I'll make her the new Pola Negri. We'll take her to a hotel in Berlin, see what transpires. Heike's diary for Tuesday the 1st of March 
gives her side of their encounter in Berlin's Hotel Adlon. I got to the Adlon at 5pm, she writes. From morning to midnight by Georg Kaiser was another annoyer Schauspiel house and I asked if we could go. I need the time to paint you, said Christian. I saw that his easel was already set up. He drew the curtains. Take off your clothes and lie on the bed, he told me. Would anyone cast me if I was famous for being naked? I asked. How do you think Garbo got on Joyless Street? He replied, laughing. Take off your clothes and lie down. He glared at me as I removed my hat. He stared at my hairline, then caught my eyes. I turned around and took off my blouse, and then my shoes and skirt, and started to pull down my stockings. Keep them on, he said. I turned back to him. Just the stockings. I took off my bra and the inserts, and he just stared at me as I put them on the floor. Then I removed my drawers and lay on the bed. He looked at my penis. I thought he was going to be one of those men who vomit, but he just stood there, breathing heavily. I thought you said we transcend sex. I said, silence. The doctor says we're more beautiful than other women because we have to... He pushed me onto the bed. Enough about Hirschfeld. He kissed me. He was so coarse and so rough, he just wouldn't stop. Finally, he got tired. I know what you're thinking, he said, looking at my sex again. I can't. Why not, I asked. They'll send me to prison. He looked into my eyes. I'm not an invert. No, you're not, I said. I'm a woman, and as soon as Dr. Abraham gets there with Dora, I'll be complete. He laughed. You're all the same, aren't you? Hirschfeld, Abraham, all these surgeons, you just let them own you. I stroked his hand. Are you jealous of them? I asked. He turned me over and screwed me. I screamed. Be quiet, he whispered. Someone might hear. Then he stopped and shoved me onto the pillow. I sat up and looked at him. He slapped me on the cheek and then sat with his back to me. My wife, he said, my son. I stared at the wall. I'm sorry, he said. I'll talk to Comrade and Marlene, I replied. They'll introduce you to Pabst and Lang. I'll start with bit parts, but they'll see, and once they do, I'll pay for your art, I'll I... 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 Shut up, you idiot, he said. They might make films about freaks, but they don't cast them. I thought you liked freaks, I said, reminding him that Marie had seen him at the Uncle Pella, the fairground in the Vedding area of Berlin. Not when they seduce me, he yelled. He stood up. Should I leave, I asked. He nodded. I'll go, I said, just don't slap me again. He didn't move. I'll put on my clothes, just let me out. Silence. What about the portrait, I asked. I can do it from memory, he said. He went and stood by the window. I got dressed and went to the door. Goodbye then, I said. He looked at me and then turned back. I heard him opening the curtains as I left. Soon after, Shad painted his self-portrait. It premiered in a group exhibition of Neue Sacklichkeit artists at the Neues Haus de Vereins Berliner Künstler, although we know that Heiker was not invited. Shad sent her a letter, dated Monday the 3rd of October 1927, quoted in Heiker's diary two days later. Heiker, the exhibition opened at the Neues House tonight. Sorry you weren't there, 
and about the Adlon, but no one can know that you were the woman in the portrait. I hope you understand. Marcella and I are finished. Perhaps I will see you at the El Dorado. Christian. The self-portrait immediately caught the attention of critics, who cited it as one of Shad's most arresting works. In one of his first pieces for the influential politics and arts periodical Die journalist and psychologist Rudolf Arnheim drew a comparison with another of Shad's works, which has assumed a new dimension since the discovery of Heike's diaries. Arnheim wrote, The self-portrait with model is outstanding, with Christian Shad including himself amongst the dilettantes, bohemians, degenerates and freaks who populate his world. With the decadent city as a backdrop, Shad is in the foreground, wearing just a transparent shirt, which serves only to highlight his nakedness. The artist stares at the viewer, as if the viewer has personally intruded on Shad's clandestine moment of intimacy, his face filled with revulsion, heightened by the narcissus that points towards him, coming from the near-naked woman behind him. He blocks her midriff, perhaps protecting her modesty, or perhaps hiding something from the intruder. Unwomanly, despite her round breasts, she wears nothing but a black ribbon around her wrist and a red stocking, looking away from the artist, stunned if not scared. They both look alone. There are just a few inches between them, but yet the distance is huge, and it's impossible not to wonder if Shad's self-disgust and the scar on her cheek are connected. The model is unnamed, but she bears a striking resemblance to the transvestite in Count saint Genoa d'Anucourt, which depicts an aristocrat caught between his public image and his desires, between virtue and vice. The Count stands in the centre, ambivalent, seemingly hoping that the viewer will help him to solve his dilemma. Does he go with the demure, respectable woman to his right, or the tall invert to his left, his cheeks plastered in rouge, his huge frame barely covered by the transparent red dress that exposes his backside? Either way, the transvestite's resemblance to the woman in the self-portrait is noticeable, although Shad claims that the model was chosen through a chance encounter in Vienna. Heike saw the self-portrait later that week, recording her thoughts in the final entry of the recovered diaries. She writes, Went to the Neues house to see Christian's exhibition. I was alone. None of the girls from the Institute could make it. And as soon as I got there, a group of society women stared at me and then went back to the paintings. Of course, they were fawning over the one of the dandy who wants to have sex with the hostess from the Eldorado, but can't because it's not respectable. So brave, they kept saying, so bold. I decided to find the picture of me, even though Dora warned me not to. I should have listened to her. I tried not to expect anything, but had hoped that he might have tried to bring something out of me, something to show Marlene or Comrade, or even the girls, but then I saw the self-portrait with model. I stared at it. Some woman glanced at me like I was dirt, looked back at the painting and then walked away. He'd made a very good likeness of himself, but brought my hairline down and changed the style, made my nose bigger and given me breasts. He knew how much I wished mine were like that. Of course, they were there because he doesn't want anyone to find out how much he likes the third sex, and in the picture he was blocking me from the waist down. He remembered my stocking though, he was so desperate for me to keep it on, and he added a flower. The gallery assistant told me, it's a narcissus, it represents vanity. Then I asked about the scar on my cheek. The attendant just shook his head when I asked what it meant. A man said they were common in southern Italy. Jealous husbands put them on their wives. I could feel the tears coming. I ran back to the institute and wept, and told Dora that I never wanted to see Christian or his painting again. 
In summer 1932, Shad had another encounter with Heiker, almost certainly his last. We know this from another letter to Holsenbeck, dated Sunday the 7th of August. Veltdada, he writes, using Holsenbeck's nickname. I promised myself I'd never go again, but last night I found myself in the El Dorado. It's been five years, but I'd only been there ten minutes, when who comes on stage but Heiker from my portrait? She wore this glistering red dress, almost transparent, and I felt scared. As she got down, I called her. She recognised me and tried to run to the bar. I grabbed her wrist. I won't hurt you. She looked at me, trembling. A couple of the inverts came over. I'm fine, she said to them and sat with me. I thought about when you said that being with her would be the perfect Dada gesture because she was so spectacularly ugly in the portrait. But I was stunned at how good she looked, just like when I first met her. You look incredible, I told her. She thanked me. I can't believe that Marlene is in Hollywood and you're still here. You were right, she said. They don't cast freaks. Silence. Did Dr. Perschfeldt... Dr. Abraham got there with Dora, she said. I'm fourth in line. Next year, they hope, if things calm down. Which things, I asked. Hitler says that Hirschfeld is the most dangerous man in Germany, she told me. And if he gets in... My career is finished, I said. Your career and my life, she shouted. The club, the surgery, the institute, everything. Silence. I might die on the operating table like Lily, referring to Lily Elba, the transsexual woman who died during surgery in 1931. She took a drawer on a cigarette. That might not be so bad. You don't need surgery, I said. You're beautiful as it is. If that's so, she asked, why did you cover me? It wasn't a mistake. I could tell from that scar you drew on my face. I was breaking up with Marcella, I told her. I didn't want to hurt her any more by letting her know I'd been with you. The Count's shameful secret, she said. Your shameful secret. Marcella is dead, I said. She drowned. There's no need to stay here. Come away with me. Where can I go? She asked and started crying. I held her hand and said I was sorry. She went back to her friends. I doubt I'll ever see her again. We'll paint to work out how I talk about her. We'll paint to work out how I feel about this. Let's talk soon, Christian. In October 1932, Franz von Papen, the right-wing chancellor of the Republic, banned same-sex couples from dancing together in public, effectively killing the clubs in which Heike worked. The Nazis came to power three months later, and as well as stepping up the attacks on Germany's LGBT population, they resolved to destroy its modernist culture. Perhaps surprisingly, Shad was not targeted, and unlike many of his Dadaist associates and Neue Sacklichkeit contemporaries, whose works featured in the notorious Degenerate Art exhibition, he stayed in Berlin, being allowed to submit to the Great German Exhibition of 1934. He remarried in 1947 five years after meeting the young actress Bettina Mittelstadt. In 1943, his studio was bomb bombed and destroyed in a raid, and when he resumed painting in the 1950s, his style had become kitsch. Christian Schad died in Stuttgart in 1982, aged 87. After Schad's letter, we know no more about Heiker. The Nazis raided Hirschfeld's institute on the 6th of May 1933, seizing its records and burning its library, before repurposing the building and turning the El Dorado into the SA's headquarters. Dora Richter, 
had already tried to flee Germany but failed, and was never seen again after the attack. We can only assume that Heike disappeared with her. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really wonderful to listen to. So, um, I guess maybe we can open up the conversation. Oh, what's that noise? Maybe it's nothing. Um, maybe we can open up the conversation with a more, a more general question about your current research, and maybe you could talk a little bit about perhaps what you're researching at the moment, what, what aspect of that is the most exciting to you right now? Yeah, I mean, actually, um, that story I just read was... Um, is this a very recent piece? No, this no. is five years, five okay. years old. Okay. Um, but it was kind of a dry run for the project I've been working on for the last four years, Brilliant. which was the basis of the PhD that I've just completed at the University of Sussex. Oh, congrats. Uh, thank you. Um, which... Quite a short run, four years. <laughs> uh, well, it was actually less than that. Um, really? Yeah, I sort of began September 2015 and finished at the beginning of this year, in fact, end of last year, so it's just okay. over three years. And I spent some time in Ukraine doing a residency, so I had a two-month break as well. But um, anyway, the project was a volume of short stories telling a history of trans and non-binary people in the United Kingdom. Um, using similar processes to some of the ones in that story of, in many cases, combining um, real and invented people. Uh, I think my favourite story in the collection is the second one, um, called A Woman of No Importance, which uh, is set around the Oscar Wilde trial, and the central character is this poet in his early 20s who's... Uh, um, kind of invert, cross-dresser, is obsessed with Oscar Wilde, but also really wants to live out this this kind of proto-trans identity, but obviously with the clampdown that comes with the Oscar Wilde trial, can't. Um, and has a similarly kind of traumatic turn as the, the story I've just read. Um, but, you know, the stories use a variety of different forms um, that I try and make feel appropriate to the content you know the first story is um a cross-dresser who just wants to have one night out as a woman in london in the 1840s and obviously it's written as a secret diary because there's no other way that story could have been written at that time um there's a story about a woman who gets outed as transsexual in the mid to late 1950s by the newspapers and that's written as a chapter from an invented memoir because memoir was the form that um transsexual people were were using at that time to um, to convey their experiences in the face of a sort of sensationalist media, and the character has direct um, confrontation with with sensationalist media in that story. Um, the 1990s story is a film script, uh, which deals with the way that lots of films in the 1990s had kind of trans uh, trans characters, but didn't involve uh, trans actors or trans voices, particularly notably. Um, with with maybe one or two exceptions, but a lot of relatively mainstream films, um, you know, use and trans also subject matters. those characters like the Silence of the Lambs. Some of them, yeah, but I mean, you know, they weren't all negative. You know, the Crying Game is very mixed. For example, Priscilla Queen of the Desert is largely positive. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, you know, the the characters themselves are quite a mixed bag, and you know, there's lots in those films that I like, and in, in uh in my, my book, Trans and Memoir, uh, I talk about growing up in the 90s and the only trans culture I really had access to was, was those films. And, you know, actually 
you know, there were positive aspects to them. Um, but, you know, again, the, the short story set in the 90s uh, in the book is called The Twist, uh, referring to the way the crying game was marketed and the gender of the protagonist in the crying game was marketed. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the film script format is a way of engaging directly with, with that form. Um, but is um, in in this way that you're like collecting um, these historical figures or like re-fictionalizing those stories or like at least like part of that story or mixing that with historical facts? Is that something that could also be called sort of like revisiting an oral history and like transforming that into the written word? Um. I think in some cases, yes. Um, one of the stories uh, set in the 1980s called Never Going Underground, and it's all about the protests against Section 28 that Margaret Thatcher introduced in Britain in the mid to late 80s to ban schools and other public bodies from promoting homosexuality. Uh, and I did interview quite a lot of people who were involved with, with the big process in Manchester, which the story is set around, um, partly to find out what the place of trans and non-binary people was within those, within that protest movement. Um, so in some sense, yes, it is a way of transcribing oral history. Um, and with that particular story, you know, fiction was an interesting form to use because none of the people I spoke to were trans. And the people I did speak to said, no, there weren't a lot of trans people involved now that you mention it. And I think that, you know, that was a flaw with our, with our movement. Um, and if we were doing the same thing now we'd make an effort to be more you know directly trans inclusive uh so i wrote the short story um again to write somebody into the narrative who's been excluded and write about the process of exclusion the central character in that story is somebody who's presenting mostly as male and then is at the time in the 1980s but is recounting the story in 2000 after she's transitioned and meets up with some people that she was on this protest with in the late 80s and talks about navigating her gender while having to present as male most of the time um, and coming up against transphobia in gay and lesbian circles because people aren't reading her as trans and so aren't restrained around her. Um, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I guess that, that also brings us back to the story that you just read. Like, when if we go, like, if we read that, fiction from art history, like the portrait that you're talking, like that's being described, would sort of like in art history not show us explicitly a trans person. It's only through an actual reading of it or like a background knowledge or a secret knowledge even that we know about this sort of um, unnameable behind behind that. And, yeah. And like just, just to like... Um, understand like to go back to like the the frame of the of the short story that you described earlier it was com you were commissioned by the Tate to work with their collection yeah and they had no art by anybody who was trans in the collection nothing on display nothing on display That's quite, yeah. um, is there anything in the collection by anybody or now a recent acquisition that you know of or is it not, really a, is not it really that I know like of, but I mean, you've had at the Haywood Gallery, for example, this big Kiss My Genders exhibition yeah, no, recently. And, yeah, you but know. we're talking like also in a historical sense, yes. right? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I can't speak for the no, entire... No, it's fine. Don't worry. Uh, we, we don't know what's no, in the archive either. Tate <laughs> collection. I mean, there may well be something somewhere. I mean, if they'd had, say, Peter Hujar's portrait of Candy Darling on her deathbed or mm-hmm. something, then I may yeah. well have done something more direct in response to that. But, I mean, you know, I looked at the, the, the self-portrait by Christian Chad um, and... And I looked at the way he was like blocking the model's midriff and just looked at the kind of features he'd given to the to the woman. And I did kind of think, well, okay, I know that there was a big trans and sort of, you know, proto trans and proto non binary subculture in Weimar Berlin. Yeah, there definitely um, was. Had done an awful lot of research on that over the years. Um and so, you know, I actually sort of researched uh the story a bit more and researched Shad a bit more and, you know, I guess the um, the, the, the discovery I made was discovering this other painting that I reference in this, you know, invented um, Rudolf Arnheim text um, of the um, Count um, Saint Genoa and Ocour, uh, where the, you know, one of the people in the portrait is explicitly a trans person, and thought, okay, well, that makes my reading of the self-portrait work even more totally. acutely. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's a secret history. It's an invented history. Like, you know, we, we don't know who this woman was. Uh, we don't know if it was, you know, we don't know if the model was a trans person or not. Um, but it seemed like an interesting sort of field to kind of provoke the audience. And that's one of the things you can do with fiction is, you know, ask these questions. Um, you can invent, this is a technique I use quite a lot. You can take a historical uh, scenario and quite often I will do that. Uh, and I will sort of see certain things in that scenario that say something to me about social processes, whatever. And you can invent a second person um, that draws all of the strands that you see in that situation into the narrative that you want to tell. I saw um, uh, recently, it was just for all intents and purposes, a dreadful play, but it's Maxine Peake playing Nico, right, in this play. But during the play, she said a very interesting thing. There was this one line where she was like, if if it's documentary, then everybody says it's actually not true. And if it's a fiction, then you're so fucking close to the truth. And would you say that with um, with your kind of multiple fictionalizing, how much of your present day experience or things that you know to be true, are you kind of weaving through that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so to take this particular story, uh, when I read it at the Tate Modern, um, quite a lot of the audience walked out during the sex scene. No. Um, hey. We didn't have any sort Did of content. No, warning? no, we didn't. And I, I hate trigger warning. But I'm like not. Content yeah, right, I mean, we should have done, and actually, I kind of wanted to, and we didn't manage to communicate it properly, and I got in quite a lot of trouble with the audience. Um, and it was sort of precisely because I thought, you know, the audience will really relate to this. Yeah. Uh, and people kind of over-related to it. And it was, you know, it was kind of traumatic for them to to be in that space. And I get that, you know, it's it's alive, alive reading. It's, it's you know, it's not like watching a film at home or something where you can just kind of stop the DVD or whatever. It's, it's you know, it's this difficult uh, context to be taking in that kind of material. Um, but, you know, obviously that, that sex scene, you know, dealt quite a lot of my own experiences of, um, of sex with men um, in my 20s and, and early 30s of being kind of objectified and dehumanised and, you know, existing in a culture where, you know, films would regularly portray trans people as sort of butts of jokes and, you know, either as fetish objects or sort of inherently unattractive, depending on how well we passed, uh, all of those things. So, yeah, certainly, you know, my own... My own sexual history fed into the story. Um, my own 
kind of experience of looking for trans people in culture and not really finding finding them and you know not being sure how much I necessarily wanted to be represented by that culture anyway because when we did get represented like in Woman with the Portrait the representation is so um, awful that actually you prefer to just have nothing mm. um, and a sense of not being in control over culture um, but that to me is such a beautiful example of how powerful fiction can be of like by like sort of like a self-entitlement of like inventing that story that isn't there or like sort of providing one's own self-identification. I also think it's kinder in a sense for like for definitely for for cis people to be or or trans people to be able to access these very very hard subjects through something that isn't directly now, isn't directly mm. like the autobiography. And I think that that is actually an, an easier access point. So the audience at the Tate should have been more grateful. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> people thought the story was good. I mean, it's not that people didn't like the story. I mean, precisely the problem was it kind of succeeded too well in yeah, conveying no, the, um, the sort of emotional truth of, of transphobia. Um, yeah. In in your personal like y your own reaction to this or like your own like um, I don't know attitude to towards a situation like this, would you prefer an audience to be completely conf like confirm or like 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 have the audience like being hundred percent pro with what you're reading, or is that actually something? If people are shocked, is that actually something that? It I gives think, confirmation to the text. I think if people are a hundred percent on board with what you're saying, you don't need to say it. Um, and that's not to be kind of willfully contrarian, because like, <laughs> screw that. I mean, you know, the most boring people in the world are contrarians. Um, I mean, I've been very amused lately by the way that, you know, people on Twitter look at someone like Brendan O'Neill from Spiked magazine, and something happens that is obviously terrible and. You know, people don't even try and guess what Brendan O'Neill's take is going to be anymore, you know, because they know it's not going to be, this thing isn't terrible, you're terrible for thinking it's terrible. <laughs> and just have a sweepstake on when it's going to appear and kind of ask after his health if it's less than like 30 minutes. Um, so, you know, I never go out of my way to to shock people, really. That's, you know, that's I just think that's really tedious. Um, but, you know, you do try and be provocative and... I guess like a piece like this, you know, I'm partly asking, have you been on the end of this sort of transphobia? You know, have you sexually or culturally or intellectually had to deal with the sort of processes of dehumanization and marginalization that Hiker has to deal with? Um, you know, what might you do about it? Um, you know, it's trying to provoke people to action as well. And, you know, I mean, Something I just kind of want to say about this story is, you know, and we talked about finding a way in through fiction is like, I mean, she's not real. I invented her, but I, I love Hiker. I, you know, I kind of want to be <laughs> friends with her. I want to help her. I want to go shopping with her. I want to, you know, share art I like with her. Um, you know, she's somebody who, yeah, I mean, I kind of also, obviously, you know, growing up, it took me quite a long time to find any um, trans or non-binary friends. Um, and my, you know, relationships with the trans and non-binary quote-unquote community are are a mixed bag, but um, as they are for anyone, I think. But, you know, partly writing these stories, kind of inventing the people that I sort of wanted to be friends with, and that carries its own set of challenges because you don't want to be inventing these sort of fantasy 
trans people who are you know kind of perfect and you need to give them the freedom to you know do bad things and disappoint you and all of this but um yeah that's that's a really interesting aspect to the sort of historical fiction side of things is creating people who i just i think existed i'm almost certain existed but if they didn't then i want them to that's so beautiful do you have a favorite person who did exist do you have a favorite a favorite through all of your research through all of your history of um of trans people who were perhaps ignored and non-documented um i mean favorites may be a bad word but everybody has favorites i mean yes obviously um i mean you know lily alba is a far more interesting character than the um eddie redmayne Oh God, film the Danish film. girl would have you believe it's a staggeringly dull film it's, I don't it is staggeringly dull quite understand it? how they managed to make that story that boring but um, here we are no one else can do it now um, <laughs> so there's that um, I mean I I mean again this is a really tragic story um, I grew quite obsessed with a, a film called uh, City of Lost Souls by a German filmmaker Rosa von Praunheim um, oh, yeah. Yeah, from Praunheim is wonderful. For anyone who's not familiar, he was I'm sort not, of a so contemporary <laughs> of Rainer Werner Fassbinder, okay. um, and tended to make more documentary and sort of lots of like weird sort of hybrid documentary fiction films, trashier mm. than Fassbinder, certainly less professional and often kind of cruder and, and more direct politically. Trashier than Fassbinder sounds great. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> so and great. my favourite of his films is a, a film called City of Lost Souls, which was made in 1982 with Jane County, who is someone I really kind of like, punk. Mm transsexual singer made a record called man enough to be a woman she's great autobiography is a lot of fun same title um and uh, jane county was the sort of star of this this musical about these sort of queer and outsider americans living in uh, west berlin um and to be honest like the plots are shambles like it's a complete <laughs> mess um you're not watching this film for the plot like what's interesting is all these improvised conversations okay. between the people in the film and it's the first time i've ever seen it's the oldest film I can think of that kind of passes the sort of trans version of the Bechdel test, which is like two openly trans characters okay. who are named, who talk to each other about something other than transition or their bodies. But the conversations about their bodies are really interesting. And there's a conversation between Angie Stardust, who is was the first black transsexual woman to perform at the New York Cabaret in the 50s, I think. Um, and a younger kind of transvestite, I think now would be sort of fairly non-binary or... Um, transgender woman um, and they talk about their relationship with their genders and Tara O'Hara I just thought was incredible she's really beautiful, she's really stylish she's incredibly funny, she's sexually really um, really kind of open and overt um, and she got murdered in Berlin um, she was like a lot of the cast of the film, she ended up becoming HIV positive uh, I mean, the film was made, yeah, like I said, 80, late 82, mm. early 83 is kind of the last possible point at which you can make a film as sexually open as okay. City of Lost Souls. Um, but, I mean, so Tara kind of contracted the virus, yeah. but she got killed before before that took her. Um, but, again, she's somebody who I just... I kind of watched the film, and the first time I saw it, I thought, why have I never heard of this person? And then kind of looked her up and was like, yeah, oh, that's nice. why. that's why, yeah. Um, yeah, Charlotte Cooper uh, from the band Homosexual Death Drive, she knew Tara O'Hara and wrote okay. a really beautiful kind of um, eulogy for her, which I really recommend looking up. 
Well, this is good because now I have lots of good things to look up after we've spoken. <laughs> we've talked about film quite mm. a lot throughout this, and I know that um, Nana has some thoughts and wants to talk to you about a film that you sent through for us. Because you not only write, but also make films. Yes. And we um, we wanted to talk a bit about your film, which is called You, Are F you Will Be Free. Yeah. And um, can you give us a, a little bit of context to this? It was it's 2015. 17. Seven, sorry. Yeah. Um, so it was commissioned by the Studio Voltaire Gallery um, as a work to go with an exhibition I had on at the time called Putty's Pudding, which was uh, drawings by an Italian cartoonist, Vittorio Scapati, uh, and texts written in response to the drawings by his partner, the American uh, actor and uh, and writer Cookie Muller. Um, they both died in 1989 of um, AIDS-related illnesses. Uh, and Scapati, I think, six months before he died, his lungs collapsed and lost the ability to speak. So they were communicating with each other um, through these drawings and through these annotations, uh, which, you know, Cookie Muller lived for maybe six months to a year after Scapati and spent her last year, last months on Earth, like, collating this material. Um, and she... Um, She wrote this, um, one of the texts she wrote to him, uh, you know, very near the end, uh, I used as the, um, the prompt for my, my film, so I'm going to read it. Cookie Miller wrote, Fortunately, I am not the first person to tell you that you will never die. You simply lose your body. You will be the same, except you won't have to worry about rent or mortgage or fashionable clothes. You will be released from sexual obsessions. You will not have drug addictions. You will not need alcohol. You will not need to worry about cellulite or cigarettes or cancer or AIDS or venereal disease. You will be free. So I wanted to make a film responding to, to that idea and I wrote a sort of 10 minute script. Um, just just giving my, my feelings about that idea. Um, and what the implications of it might might be and you know sort of responding on responding to the legacy of the AIDS crisis itself um, but also you know more sort of existentially about what it means to have a body you know as a transsexual woman that question's been quite complicated for me um, and used quite a lot of um, of archive uh, footage so for example um, you see archive footage from some of the ACT UP uh, funeral marches the Don't Die of Ignorance adverts that terrified the life out of a generation of uh, British people in the 80s and were actually directed by Nicholas Rogue, uh, which meant it was quite difficult for us to use that, that footage. But, you know, sort of ruminating on the idea of the afterlife and the fact that um, a lot of the people who uh, were in power in the 80s in the UK and the US were very religious, uh, people who were very anti-gay. There was a big anti-gay backlash, of course, at this point. Uh, and people who were quite delighted by the emergence of AIDS and the types of people it was killing. Um, so, you know, one of the lines in the, the, the film, um, the central character, well, the narrator says, I could never countenance that sort of celestial afterlife. And if I had to share it with those police chiefs and preachers who said that AIDS was a gift from God, then I'd rather keep out of it. Um, <laughs> So I did that, and then, you know, there's actually some footage of Tara O'Hara from City of Lost Souls uh, talking about um, ideas of, of heaven and how they all end up being connected to the body and the pleasures of the body and youthful innocence being something that's connected to having a body that is perceived as young that 
Um, and then, you know, a lot of the pleasures that came with finding safe spaces in the 80s for queer people obviously relied on them being in the same place, you know, physically, I mean, pre-internet. Um, and obviously sex, uh, you know, it's fairly fairly obvious. But then, you know, the, the, the film sort of pivots to talking about regrets and ways in which we might have replayed life and what have we done life differently. Um, and this, this feeling of an afterlife that is in the hands of other people that we have no control over. Um, I think one of my favourite bits of the film is, is near the end where the narrator talks about a short story by Borges about an author who's facing execution before he's written a book that he's always wanted to write and how he judged every other writer by what they published and himself by what he planned or projected, which is something I've done a fair bit. Uh, and says in the end he's granted a miracle, a suspension of time that allows him to finish the book in the one night he's got left before his end. And that story works because we all know that no one else could ever see what we plan or project and what we leave is all our successors will have to play with. Um, so, you know, the film kind of concludes by going back to the Cookie Muller quote um, and talking about... Um, you know how yes this will be a release in some ways we will be free um but you know the, the key line is we won't need to worry about memory or dreams or desires or regrets and of course they're the things that make up life painful as they often are um yeah i guess that's something that the the film expresses to me really strongly like sort of like we're caught in this dilemma of um like when 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 the when the film starts out and maybe we have to tell that in like the film starts out with like just like a blank image like it's blue and yeah black. it's an obvious reference to uh, Derek Jarman uh, it's a blue screen with um, ambient music playing by um, Jimmy Villa, Jimmy Bellingham of Femrain which 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 is like it functioned to me as like a double. Uh, it had like a double function to me because like the the very film sort of got, got disembodied for me by this like plain like blue screen black screen yeah and of course Jarman did that with um, with blue because he was uh, dying of an age related illness yeah. in 1993 and died in 94 um, and so um, you know he was um, losing his sight so of course he detaches the sound from the image uh, in a way that he he was experiencing, uh, and so the blue screen at the beginning of the film with the subtitles and the music is referencing that. But then the the music stops, the screen goes from blue to black, and there's complete silence for really a bit too long. Um, and you know the film screened at the Wising Art Centre as part of their exhibition uh, beginning of 2018, more more than more of an avalanche. And so I went and sort of watched the film with people and you, know, you could feel that sort of intentionally kind of deathly silence at that moment in the film and then the narrator comes back in and start talking about you know these conventional ideas of a sort of religious afterlife um, and then the film obviously tries to move you away from that towards the pleasures of the body and 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 you know of a more sort of existential sense about what you create being being all there is yeah exactly and like but then we're back in, in in this dilemma that like in in the beginning of the film when you hear um like if there's no alcohol if there like you won't suffer from addiction and uh, you won't need cigarettes you won't need and um, this and that like you, you will be so free but at the same time so like yeah at the same time there will be no um not a lot of like target for political oppression if you don't have that body but there will also be no 
like surface for pleasure no absolutely and and yeah you know those those are the things that make up life exactly um you know if there's no regulation of pleasure then yeah there's no pleasure and there's no pleasure to be found in escaping that regulation um but actually i mean like like watching the film as as film and like hearing your you're reading and writing at the same time to me like the film is like so much about these words like there's something like so strong in like how the how the voiceover like is talking to you directly and like how like in at least in the in the first and in the end bit you you don't have like images to like hold on to and like we're so used and like sort of like um having something to um distract our, ourselves with and like seeing a film that's like just like like not just but like in those parts like the the spoken word like like i feel like it has a strong connection to your other practice yeah absolutely i mean it's it's a very um textual film you know the the images were very much chosen to support the text and i wrote the text first um i said earlier this is one of my favorite if not my favorite things i've ever made and you know the film does say pretty much everything i want to say about kind of life and embodiment and my attitude to to life and my feelings about being in this world Uh, pretty much everything is in this film. I wrote the script very quickly. Um, I wrote the script on a two-hour train journey coming back from a football match in Norwich um, towards the end of a pretty disappointing uh, season in which I think, you know, I did want some sort of freedom and release from it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, so wrote, wrote the uh, wrote the script on the train back from what was probably like a one-all draw against, like, I don't know, Nottingham Forest or something. But... Um, Any road, um, you know, didn't really redraft the script much either, just kind of tweaked it a bit. Um, but the script was pretty much fully formed. And then, of course, the, the next thing was, you know, as you say, that connection, particularly at the beginning and the end of the film, is hugely important. Um, and the, the finding of the, um, the voiceover artist felt slightly miraculous. I was working on another film project at the time with a a uh, really brilliant Slovenian um, artist called Jasmina Sibits, who does these uh, these incredibly ambitious projects about sort of architecture and ideology, and they often use sort of found text. And we wrote a script together for a film, and she was casting and had three women playing the three central characters, and one of them was a actor called Anna Louise Plowman. Um, and literally the moment she said, hello, I'm Anna Louise, I thought, you. <laughs> I want you to be in this film. So, you know, I took her aside and said, can we do this? And she said, yeah, you know, here's my agent. We'll have to do it all through that. But she was incredibly generous with her time. I mean, you know, I had a very small budget. I think the film cost about 700 pounds. Um, we managed to persuade some people to give us archive footage for free. Um, really good. We had to pay a bit for the Nicholas Rogue, don't die of ignorance thing. But everything else, I think people just let us use. Uh, there's footage of children uh, running around. Um, the narrator is, is talking about, you know, sort of youthful innocence. And, you know, obviously there's a million pieces of stock footage of children. And so I decided to use the one that was shot in my hometown, which is uh, Hawley in Surrey near Gatwick Airport uh, in 1953, which is around about the time my parents were born. And it's at Hawley Cricket Club, which is where I used to always go and watch the fireworks as a, <laughs> as a child, about 10 minute, 10 minute walk from my childhood home. So um, I went with that and Screen Archive Southeast, let us use it for free. Um, and so Anna Louise, you know, we went to do the recording and we had about an hour of her time. And, you know, she's a professional actor. Wow. So uh, we overran quite significantly and I was really stressing out. And she was so generous and really said, look, it's a really, you know, beautiful film. I really, 
she said she sort of cried reading the script and she said I really want this to work so I will stay until it's done uh, and I never saw her again <laughs> and I don't think I've actually really I mean I've just I've, I emailed her to say the film's done it's here if you want to see it and I've not actually had any contact with her but um, you know there's something quite beautiful about that that we were just sort of together for the very the making moment. of this this film and then and then it's 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 over yeah so you stay with her disembodied voice yeah absolutely. And, i mean what a voice it's it's i mean yeah. maybe we can tweet out it's a link very to the striking. film or something yeah oh yeah if you um if is this film online uh yeah very good oh, yeah, well, yeah that would be great to do we can that. definitely well, share share a link to that that would be something we'd really like to do great do you have another question emily um, well we've got about five minutes left so I have, I always want to ask really brilliant writers what they're reading, mm. um, because it's nice notes for me. So <laughs> is there anything at the moment that you're reading that you find that's really capturing your interest? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's a joyful theme. Uh, the last book I finished <laughs> was uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt, okay. uh, which is an extraordinary book. I mean, I really, you know, it's in size and subject matter, it's obviously quite daunting. Um, but it's really worth the effort, I think, sort of astonishing charting of the emergence of anti-Semitism as a kind of political issue mm. rather than a sort of social one and um, how that intersected sort of quite disastrously with the emergence of the nation state uh, and nationalism uh, and how that transformed the nature of anti-Semitism and then how uh, imperialism, you know, the sort of so-called like liberal democracies of the late 19th century some of them liberal democracies, some of them not. But, um, you know, how they actually sort of perfected the sort of bureaucracy of totalitarianism and, you know, the sort of idea that, you know, one group of people could and should be ruled over by a superior group of people um, and how both of these two things fed into um, Stalinism and, and National Socialism. Uh, so that was the last book I finished. I mean, I'm reading something a little bit more fun now, which is uh, The Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño. Um, which is all about this sort of avant-garde poetry group uh, and a couple of the poets disappear and people are trying to find them and uh, it's got a really, about maybe a third of the way through, it's got a really dizzying array of characters in it. Um, but, you know, lots of sort of really interesting pithy opinions on um, poets uh, of the time, uh, including a Homero Aridius, um, which really kind of struck me because Homero's daughter Chloe is a good friend of mine we were in a film together okay. um last year or the year before called Female Human Animal okay. um and also um Bolaño writes a lot and he's the only person I know who's really done so uh sort of keeps referencing Sophie Podolsky who was this sort of wonderful like Belgian artist and poet oh, yeah. who died at the age of 21 um and she wrote a book called uh, The Country Where Everything Is Permitted um, which I haven't read because I'm waiting for the English translation to appear. There's a big exhibition of her work last year and You Will Be Free screened around that exhibition. But Sophie Podolsky is someone I've written about as a really beautiful uh, artist and, and, and writer, so she's really worth looking up. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Do you have any, Is there anything that we have not asked you today that you would particularly like to talk about? Um, that's a good question. Sometimes people just, yeah, you might have something you really wanted to say. Um, come with, come with something you really, really want to say. No, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of between um, projects at the moment. So, well, I mean, I'm sort of working on a project, so I don't have anything to plug. Okay. Uh, I don't have any kind of grand <laughs> political statement to make that I haven't made already. When's the um, new project going to come out? Like, yes. Can you give us uh, like well, a it's little with, bit of a Well, it's with sneak. publishers at the moment, so it's really impossible to say. I mean, that's my, fine. 
My guess would be a year after next, I think, is probably realistic. But who knows? The publishing industry is a strange... Oh, strange true. Beast. <laughs> strange so, beast, yeah. as we know. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's exciting. Yeah. We're looking forward to that. Very much. Oh, in that case, I think we can probably... Um, wrap up we just want to say thank you so much thank you for coming to speak to us that reading was really amazing it was very moving actually i really enjoyed it so it's always a really strange piece to read out and a couple of times i've read it at the tate modern and at a psychoanalysis conference a couple of years ago i've been kind of shaking at the end of it and it's yeah. you know it's it's a really kind of powerful piece to read i think and just the you know maybe the the level of kind of violence and trauma in that text is maybe the furthest i've gone with with that so so yeah hopefully it was okay to listen to oh no it was beautiful it was beautiful thank you so much honestly cool we'll hand over to tom yes That was Juliet Jakes in conversation with Emily Pope and Christiana Blotman. Uh, next up, we have a segment that was pre-recorded for us by Incap Press. That'll be Iris Cushing on Mary Norbert Cortez's life as a poet and ecological activist. Who's let me play with fire? Whatever is I are the remnants. I've never considered any results before those results happened. At this moment, if I could only roam myself under your feet, I would, and the whole world would see what I am. How easy it is for me to ask to be regarded as low and dirty, to ask to be spat upon. This isn't sluttishness, but it is the language of a woman who thinks. It's a role. I have always learned for myself. I'm a woman who is alone, outside the accepted. Outside the law, which is language, this is the only role that allows me to be as intelligent as I am and to avoid persecution. But now I'm not thinking for myself, because my life is disintegrating right under me. My life's disintegrating under me, so I'll not bear the lie. My inability to bear that lie is what's giving me strength. Even when I believed in meaning, when I felt defined by collision and opposition, and this opposition between sexual desire and the search for self-reclamation and self-knowledge was tearing me apart, even back then, I knew that I was only lying. That I was lying superb. 
Kathy Acker is outside the law, which is language. Next up, Incap Press. 